I'm Dorothy Truth, and this is how I became Death Herself. Chapter 1 Meeting Death Himself I guess not everyone has a story about how they met Death himself in a bar one morning and how they helped turn him into the world's greatest salesman while at the same time revolutionizing the whole death business. But I do. My name's Dorothy Truth, and this is that story. I'm sitting here comfortably in my little kitchen telling all this into a little recording device. On our budget, I can't afford a fancy studio, so we may be interrupted from time to time by the barking of dogs or the whinnying of horses or sounds of chickens or vehicles speeding by. I also want to apologize for any confusion that this story might engender. The fault, if this happens, is almost certainly mine. So bear with me if, while listening to this story, you find yourself thinking, this doesn't make any sense at all. I know it doesn't make any sense, but still, it happened. And even though this story is about me and death, oddly enough, my twin brother, Douglas Truth, is an integral part of the story, too. If only because the difficulties of our relationship, which were not always his fault, to be sure, might have brought on the despair that eventually, through a much tortured path, led to my meeting with Mr. Death. We never know which of the difficulties we face in life are required to get us where we needed the whole time to get to. My guess is that's the way it actually works. Some things, maybe most, we just won't do until we absolutely have to, until the issue is forced. That's what happened to me. They made me do it. Maybe that's the universe's job in a way, perhaps its only job, to become our unavoidable lesson. Like some kind of gigantic teaching machine. Now in totally realistic 3D. Well, the first question is, why or how did I become death herself? I really don't have a good answer for that. I find it as mystifying as anyone else. Was there something about my life or childhood that might explain it? I don't know. It seemed pretty normal to me at the time, but there was this weird thing. As a kid, I was totally invisible. I'm not speaking psychologically here. I mean, nobody knew I was there, literally. My parents didn't know that they had had twins. On that day in early May, so long ago, in the delivery room, the nurses are cooing over the cute little boy named Douglas while I'm on the floor thrashing around, you know, waving my arms. Hey, a little help over here, please. But no, they didn't see me. I was invisible. Somehow I get home with the rest of the family. I don't know how. Another mystery. All this happened a long, long time ago in a mythical, magical place called Indiana. A farmhouse on the north side of Indianapolis, middle class, dog and a cat. 
blue spruce in the front yard, treehouse in the back. Pretty normal boomer life, maybe. Except for that one weird thing. So for me, it was a feral child in a suburban home. On her own, fending for herself, raising herself. I have to make and protect my own little nesting areas. I don't have a room, of course. I gather materials, socks, dust bunnies, clocks, chicken wings, hair dryers, receipts, forming and shaping them behind the couch or under the stairs. They keep discovering my little structures and throw them out, wondering if they have rats or marmosets in the house or something. I have to start all over again. I have to feed myself, of course, with table scraps, things I find on the counter. The refrigerator door left open briefly. A cookie jar. Yeah, lots of cookies. And in very desperate hours, pet food. Well, not cat food, but dog biscuits. You know, they're not really so bad, actually. The dogs are like, sure, have a biscuit. Curl up on the couch with us. I like cats. Cats are okay, but I love dogs. So it's weird, right? My feral childhood, bringing myself up in the wilds of an Indiana suburb. But it ends one day. I'm eight years old. Late one summer, late August, the yellow air thick with dust and pollen. I'm standing in the kitchen with Mom and Douglas, listening to them chat about something or other. Dinner is in the oven. I'm eating a cookie. Bugs fly listlessly in that dense gas, not sure why they're there at all. Outside, a starling turns her head to the left, raises one leg. Two streets over, a car honks. A squirrel, in mid-flight, leaping from a telephone wire to a branch below, ponders its own existence. Next door, a teapot whistles on the stove. All these things happen in this very moment, right now. The suddenly rich colors in the rose print wallpaper. Why? The blue and white dish towel hanging from the oven door. Things are so bright. Is this why Mom is screaming? No. No, it isn't. She's looking at me, then looking at Douglas, then looking at me, then looking at Douglas, and screaming. A wonderful, high-pitched, crazy girl scream. So I scream, too. I figure it's what you do in this kind of situation. It's not the blue and white dish towel. It's me. I'm visible now. They see me, and I see them seeing me. I'm seeing things as they do. And we're all still screaming. Now, my years of howling with the dogs on the front porch have given me a staying power and a volume that most little girls can't even come close to. Mom and I have some great crazy girl harmonics going on. You can actually see these quivering concentric circles in the dense yellow gas above our heads. Now Douglas sees his twin sister, me, for the first time, eating a cookie. And he puts it all together in a second. A little backstory here. Over the years, I ate a shitload of cookies, and he got blamed for it, every single one. It didn't matter how much he stamped his foot, insisting upon his innocence, reminding the parents that his name was indeed Douglas Truth. Nothing availed. For years this goes on, and now he sees me with a cookie in my mouth. So it was you, he says. All along, it was you. He looks up at Mom for his moment of vindication, but she's still busy screaming. And disgusted, he turns around and goes out the back door to play. I hear the screen door slam and the basketball bouncing in the driveway. He never could play. I hate to tell you this, but he still hasn't forgiven me for this. I know it was bad, but geez, it was a really long time ago. I was hungry for Pete's sake. 
At long last, the screaming stops. Mom and I are just pooped out. So we just stand there and look at each other, not really knowing what comes next. It's kind of an awkward moment. It's funny, though. That's actually one of the things the truths are famous for is awkwardness. Anyway, she's a practical woman, Mom is. She turns and grabs a damp sponge from the old farm sink behind her, leans in to give it to me, and in that moment we both realize that she doesn't know my name, or even if I have one. But like I said, she's a practical Hoosier woman. Without skipping more than a beat or two, she asks, What's your name, dear? I'm wondering, is this a trick question? Dorothy, I say, questioning. Thing is, I wasn't sure about the name thing, right? How that works. I mean, can you name yourself? Can you take a name or borrow one? I just wasn't sure, but that's what I did. Here's what happened. The Wizard of Oz, right? The American Bhagavad Gita, our foundational story. It's on TV, a big deal. The family all on the couch, feet up on hassocks, the dogs curled up on the floor, content, cats on laps. The rooms darkened. We're off to see the wizard. Dorothy. Me, I'm standing behind the couch, halfway behind the drapes, not because the family will see me. I'm invisible, but because I'm scared. I mean, those monkeys, right? They still give me the creeps. Feels like I'm watching the movie all alone with Dorothy. So sure, I identify with her. I want to be her. She's kind, funny, takes care of everyone. It doesn't take no for an answer. And she's so badass that she kills two wicked witches and such a good guy that she feels bad about it. She saves her little dog. She helps everyone get the thing they need, even the wizard. And she's kind of an orphan, like me. So I take the name. I make it mine. Will she buy it, though? Well, Mom, believe me. Well, that's a perfectly lovely name, Dorothy, she says. Now will you take the sponge and wipe down the dining room table and set the table for dinner? Include a plate for yourself, too, of course. And I do that. And I sit on the chair in the kitchen and watch Mom make dinner, and I'm a silent child, and I listen to the basketball bounce in the back. The fan turns slowly, way up high in the kitchen. And then it's time for dinner. We, Douglas, Mom, Dad, and I, sit down to dinner just like we've done it a million times. We eat like it's the most normal thing ever. And that's it. Nothing more is ever said about the matter. My matter. The matter of the invisible, until now, completely unsuspected and strange twin sister suddenly freakishly showing her face right in the kitchen. That. Never mentioned again. It's a Midwest thing, perhaps. We don't chat things to death, you know? We don't talk, talk, talk about things. Why talk about it anyway? We'll probably just make it worse. Leave it alone. People die. They move away. They forget. I mean, I don't think they ever told Dad about me. So sure, my life gets better. Three squares a day. Permanent nesting area. Girls' clothes. Sure. It's okay. But still second class, you know? I don't even get to go to school. I would have to be explained. Sometimes I miss my exile, howling with the dogs on the front porch, gazing at the moon. Sometimes I do. There are fond memories, too. Pizza, TV, enormous amounts of TV. Big bowl of Uncle Ben's converted rice covered with butter and sugar. Sitting on the floor, back to the couch, watching El Cid or some John Ford Western. AM radio as I fall asleep at night. Cable car halfway to the stars. What that meant to a little girl outside of Indianapolis. Summer breeze came blowing in from across the sea. 
that lingered there and made me stare. I did it my way. That's life. That's what all the people say, right now in April. Shot down in May. And basically, that's my life at the truths. Just like the TV shows, leave it to Beaver or else. Father knows dimly at best. Now, Brother Douglas gets through high school and goes off to college. Briefly, I think. We lose touch in those years. I am invited, shown the open door in other words, to go out into the wide world. Down to the street all alone, as the song says. Now, I am not, you might say, completely socialized. I'm pretty much an immigrant to planet Earth, unfamiliar with the ways of many humans. And like many immigrants, I go into the food and beverage industry. Washing dishes, bus girl cook, waitress, cocktail waitress, assistant manager. But things happen, you know, the way they do. And now I'm working as a server in a high school cafeteria. Smock, name tag, hairnet, support hose, and sensible, very ugly shoes. Your glamour job. But I get a couple of square meals a day. I've got a few pals. Acquaintances, really. At least I'm not living in a shopping cart. The thing is, I'm going a little bit crazy. That's the official diagnosis. Maybe it's envy. I don't know. My brother. The favorite. The art career. The writing. The interviews. Who knows? It does bother me, but I'll tell you this. I saw what I saw. It's the truth. My brother doesn't have a lock on that. Here's how it works out. Thursdays are becoming a problem for me down at the cafeteria. Why? I don't know. I can't figure it out. A mystery surrounds the day. Thursday. It's an itch I cannot scratch. And it gets worse and worse. Thursday. What's the big deal? People who are going crazy often do research into what's driving them crazy. And I do some research. And I find some amazing things. Did you know that meatloaf has been served on Thursday for millions of years? Maybe more. Civilizations of which no traces remain, nothing left under the sands or the waves. They all serve meatloaf or something that we would recognize as such. Maybe not with the green beans and mashed potatoes, but meatloaf. Perhaps this is a clue. It could be. Stranger things have happened. At least I assume so. Perhaps there's a connection to something. All I know is Thursdays are driving me mad. Every week it's worse. I am lost. I know not why. End of my rope. Then one night in my little studio apartment, I'm watching Godzilla, the original Japanese monster movie, on my tiny little TV. You know, it's the one with Perry Mason in it, the director's cut, where Perry is defending Godzilla in a Tokyo courtroom, where he's on trial for destroying the city with his tail and breathing fire and all that stuff. Godzilla is the good guy, see? Perry says they're mitigating circumstances, stuff like that. Prosecutorial misconduct, Your Honor. Objection, objection, so on. The Japanese equivalent of Lieutenant Trag has screwed up. Perry gets Godzilla off. They all go for drinks at a posh Ginza spot afterwards. But Godzilla is not happy. The whole thing has been terribly depressing. Then there's a poignant scene where Godzilla walks into the deep sea saying goodbye forever. Humans, he's had enough. It's really sad. Anyway, objection, Your Honor. This is definitely not germane. Relevance. Sorry, folks, I get distracted sometimes. It was a really good movie, though. What matters here is that I see a close-up of Godzilla in the movie, in the flesh, the quivering, disgusting mess of lumps and gloss and matte finishes battling it out for control. The brownness of it, the hints of green and the threads of red are all there, and it clicks. My pattern-matching software 
100% match. Meatloaf, Godzilla, they're the same thing. Larval form, right, but the same. Yeah, I know, it really is almost too horrible to contemplate. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. You know that line. Some things it's better not to know, and this is one of them. Of course, I apologize for telling you. Now you know. Don't, it'll fade in a few years. Don't worry. You know, Sorry. Now, knowing what I know, still, I must go to work. There's no alternative. I can't just say, now, Thursdays don't work for me. I throw up before work. I got to go in. I'm doing my best to hold it together, but I make a tactical error. I'm not looking at the meatloaf, right? I mean, it's not really a tactic. I just didn't want to make eye contact with them. I mean, would you? So that's what got me. I alerted them to my presence. See, the meatloaf are scanning the environment all the time. They know the score. They've been watching us humans forever. They get it. They know how it works. So they know when the scanners say that Dorothy's server number 2323 is pointedly not looking at the meatloaf at all. They know. They know why. I'm busted. They know I know. And now, according to their ancient traditions and laws, I must be destroyed. Totally. First come the remarks. The cutting, sarcastic remarks. Get under her skin, they say. Drive her mad. Drive her off the cliff like a herd of one falling to its death. The attacks intensify over the weeks and escalate to physical threatening gestures. Classic predatory behavior. They've got me separated from the rest of the herd. I'm like a cute, injured gazelle limping across the beautiful belts of Africa, Cheetos and tigers closing in. Meatloafs know the score, like I said. They know I can't go to the manager's office sick. Kurt, the meatloafs are making filthy remarks to me and I want it stopped. They know what happens if I do that. I get dragged away 90 days in the county facility. So I'm trapped, which is what they want. So one fine day, the head meatloaf looks out at the gorgeous dawn and says to his lieutenant, Dorothy dies today. The other nods. It's D.D. Day. Preparations are made, instructions given. And they start in on me as soon as I hit the line with my spatula and spoon. Hairnet smock. Ready to die, as far as they're concerned. Hardly anyone ever survives this, you know. I don't know of a single case, other than mine, of course. You see, they make a tactical error, too. Worse than mine. Sure, they're smart and they've got good intel on us humans, but they're not cinephiles. They're not up on classic American movies. So on this day, halfway through the attack, while they're wearing me down, hitting me with their depression bombs and the what's-of-use-of-life ray guns, one meatloaf says to me, as if they've got some errands to run later that day and would I please hurry up and die. Meatloaf says, wait for it. Surrender, Dorothy. No. No, I don't think so. No, not this Dorothy. I mean, saying that's like handing a can of spinach to Popeye. Taking the kryptonite handcuffs off of Superman. Underdog puts his glasses on. Or takes them off, I'm not sure which it is. Dorothy's not going to die, not today. The Tin Man is counting on me. Lovely lion, devoted scarecrow, Toto for Christ's sake. They all need me, I can't die. I stand up, I grab in one hand a spatula, razor sharp on one edge from years of use. A heavy-duty stainless steel slotted spoon. Yes, I realize for the first time in my life that I am actually a badass. I will not rust unburnished. I will shine in use. 
you assholes, you mean hoes, the battle is on. And I have to say, they don't even know what hits them. This is the biggest route in meatloaf history. Bits of meatloaf everywhere, stuck to the wall, servers shrieking, blood dripping from the noses of high school students on the other side of the line, chunks of meatloaf clinging to their eyebrows. All screaming, wailing, jumping over cafeteria tables and heading for the doors. Helicopters hovering over the parking lot, lockdown, shelter in place, mayhem. Of course I get fired. Not maintaining a professional atmosphere, things like that. But who cares? I'm alive. I've got a different perspective now. It changes things when you have a brush with death. Especially when it's meatloaves trying to kill you. But no, you, Dorothy, turn the tables and you kill them. All of them. It gives you a glimpse of what your life might actually be about. About really living. About really being alive. What it could mean. It means, for one thing, that I'm not going to be taking orders from Kurt anymore. So I head for the back exit. I throw my smock away. My hairnet goes into the garbage. I walk free, free as a bird with a bluebird on my shoulder. I can almost feel it. And it's a beautiful day outside, perhaps the most beautiful in human history. After a glorious walk, I end up in front of my favorite bar, the Dew Drop Dead Inn. I've survived, therefore, I will have a martini. I walk down the seven steps and open the twin blue leather upholstered doors with the round windows in them. The place is, as usual, nearly full, mostly guys. I put my bottom down on the only open seat at the bar, hang my purse and coat from the side of the chair. Times like this, I wish I still smoked. I look around. The place is like a tomb. Not a sound, not a pin drop, not a bubble bursting. Everyone's staring into the distance or down at the floor. Even Bud, the bartender, has got the thousand-yard stare. He's not answering my call for a drink at all. In fact, the only guy in the whole place showing any signs of life is sitting to my right. A new guy, not a regular. Believe me, I would remember this one. Tall, really tall, and old. Some rusty farm implement leaning up against the bar. He's grinding his teeth just a bit, just a bit tense, a bit unhappy with things. I was a cocktail waitress, remember? And I get an instant read on people as part of the job. Okay, what we've got here. Maybe, maybe he's an old Amish farmer, say. Bad day selling rutabagas at the market. Tired of the life all around. Wants a Camaro. Hates horses. Screw it, he says in old Dutch. Gonna have a drink, he decides. Goes to the dew drop dead for a quick one. Now he's here, can't get a drink. Silence. Ironic, isn't it? He's grim about it. I sense he needs my help. I put my hand on the dude's arm. I'm the friendly touchy type, right? Don't you worry, my friend. Don't you fret. I'll get us both a drink. I'm a professional. It's okay. I wonder what's gotten into everyone, I say. I get off the stool and head around the bar. Strange day, isn't it? And the dude, he's just staring at me. Very starey eyes. Amish dude's never seen a cocktail waitress, I suppose. Tell you the truth, I don't mind the attention. I mean, do their wives have to wear full-length sleeves and bonnets and all that shit? Special religious underwear? God, I'd get tired of that, too. I smile at him. I move Bud out of the way to get to the booze. I turn to him. You're a Scotchman, am I right? I'm not really asking. How would he know? He's Amish. Well, now you're a Scotchman. I've decided. I grab a bottle of Dewar's and... This is not product placement. 
But although it could be, a couple of glasses and I plunk them down, take the cap off, pour us a couple of doubles and a little extra because I got to pour it myself, but make it so, I say. I pick up the glass, tilt it toward him, look him in the eyes. That's my mistake right there, the eyes. These black pools of infinite depth, each an abyss all its own. I'm just about to say cheers when I really see into those eyes. I know this might sound romantic, but it isn't. At all. It's the opposite of romantic. It's eternity, okay? And I will tell you, not my cup of tea. Not only am I still recovering from that little visit, I might actually still be there. It's eternity, right? I'm okay being confused about it. You get used to it. It's my experience. So the dude reaches across the bar with his bony old farmer's hand and grabs my arm in a death grip of concern and says, Who are you? And my God, those words, it snaps me right back into the 3D world, time and space and life and so on. And that is how you spell relief, I'm telling you people. Eternity, I could talk about it all night long. That's a different show, a really long one. I'll just leave you with this idea. Eternity is not my cup of tea, like I said. I am so glad to be back here, standing at the bar with a glass of scotch in my hand. Reality. It's a tree, really. Even being with this strange dude, it's a definite improvement. He's still staring at me, holding onto my arm for dear life. He leans forward and he's asking again, What's your name, honey? Copyright 2020 by Douglas Truth.